Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. This episode was originally produced and published as episode number 178 of the Mormon Land Podcast. Natasha Helfer, a colleague and friend of Dr. Finlayson Fife's, faced a disciplinary hearing on her membership status due to her public stances on masturbation, same-sex marriage, and pornography. In this interview, Dr. Finlayson Fife discusses these topics, as well as the potential effects of Natasha's disciplinary hearing on mental health professionals as well as members of the church who seek therapy. Natasha Helfer, a licensed sex therapist and member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, faced a disciplinary hearing Sunday on her membership status. She was accused of apostasy for her public positions on masturbation, same-sex marriage, and pornography, positions she says are consistent with the consensus in the mental health community. Due to procedural differences, Helfer wound up not attending the hearing, so the council took place without her. Here to talk about Helfer and what effects this move by church leaders may have on mental health professionals and their LDS patients is Jennifer Finlayson Fife, an LDX sex therapist and friend of Helfer. Jennifer, welcome. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad you have you with us. So, so how long have you known Natasha and in what context? Well, the first time I ever interacted with Natasha is that she reached out to me. She had just started doing the Mormon Mental Health Podcast, I think is the name of it. And it was the first podcast I ever did. And she was aware of my dissertation research and uh, reached out to me. And we did a three-hour interview on my research on LDS women and sexual agency. So... That was my first interaction with her. We can, we did maybe a few more podcasts together because we shared similar interests and a similar focus on the LDS community. And then when she started the Mormon Mental Health Association, I was one of the uh, first board members the first three years of its existence. Okay. So it started with a professional association and, and developed from there, correct? Y- yes, exactly. Yeah. So what did you think when you heard about the potential her potential loss of church membership and the and the accusations against her? Um, my heart sunk and I felt a little bit of fear. Explain more about the fear. Sorry, just give me a second. <laughs> okay. Um I think it's hard to imagine. When you're working hard to help people that you could be um, thrown out. I understand that Natasha takes pretty openly challenging positions. Um, Her style is different than my style. Um, But I do know Natasha to be someone who has been invested in, in helping members of the church, even if people disagree with how she's done it or some of the positions she takes. Um, So it's, um, I think I felt some fear because I also take some challenging positions because I see the impact of some of the ways that people internalize messages and how it impacts their mental health and their marriages and their, and their ability to thrive. And so 
it's it's a hard line to walk sometimes to balance people's faith, which really matters in people's well-being and happiness, and also how to challenge what I would call false traditions or notions that exist within our culture that undermine people's well-being. It's it's interesting uh, as you look at it, you, and and you obviously don't know you're not the the church officials, but. Is it is it possibly more like you say how she goes about how she went about uh, you know the language she may use in for instance in some of her public uh, uh, responses versus the actual message she's saying? I I don't know, but I can imagine that's true because I think Natasha's style is to be kind of. Um, you know, she's more directly challenging of church leadership. I think she's more directly challenging that they have the power to change it and that they should. And if they don't, that, you know, there's an abuse in it. And so I, I think that that directness is has some strength in it because it at least lays her position bare, I think. But I think it can also, of course, create a defensiveness and a and a kind of um, vilification of her as as well and maybe limit her ability to impact possibly so um you signed a letter a statement from other therapists um obviously this hurt the situation when natasha hit a lot of mental health therapists in the church why do you think it was really important to do that well i think You know, something that Natasha's been very clear about, and I think part of the reason that she started the Mormon Mental Health Association is that as mental health professionals, to hold to your ethical obligations, that you have to be referencing best practices and current thinking. And if you make your loyalty first... um, church positions that you could betray potentially some of the kind of scientific understanding of, of mental health and good mental health practices. And so it's, I imagine there's been other professions that have come up against that bind um, historically. And so it's a way of saying, you know, it's not that the mental health profession gets everything right, of course, and we are also an evolving entity and have our own blind spots, just as the church may have its own blind spots and is evolving. But there is a kind of question around um, if you're going to at least hold up what we know at this point or what we understand at this point versus give loyalty to what is currently understood within the church or church culture. So do you worry that this disciplinary action will have a chilling effect on Mormon therapists who want to stay within the fold? But will they be worried? I mean, I don't know. I think it could, but I do. I, I think it could. I believe also that the church and church members want to be healthy and want to keep growing. And I really see that over and over and over again. And I think, you know, I guess I don't believe that's going to go away. And so I don't think we have it figured out. The more the mental health profession doesn't have it figured out, but I think this striving to do better will continue to exist. And I imagine 
dedicated mental health professionals will keep doing their job. Jennifer, how might it affect uh, LDS patients or clients who, who seek this kind of counseling and help? Well, you know, I, I, it's a good question. I have to think about it a second. I think when the church, and I understand I'm speaking in one monolithic term when I say the church, but I think when any church leader takes an action like this, it, it pushes membership to sort of pick a side. And so I certainly have seen this online. I posted, uh, uh, some of my comments on this on my social media and you really see people kind of doubling down either in a defensive position or even doubling down in an attacking position, which is tragic to me because we lose all the nuance. We lose all the understanding of each other. So I think there's some that may distrust mental health professionals in general or may or may want to say, you know, they're getting it wrong or they're not faithful enough. But I tend to think that's a short-lived effect if it's there, because I do think that, you know, there's a lot of people that are suffering and trying to sort things out and they're looking for thoughtful people that can give them some perspective. So let's uh, delve into a few of the, the stances that that Natasha has taken and, and others have. Do, do you share her her views on, for instance, masturbation, that it is a, a normal part of sexual development and should not be viewed as a sin? You know, I talk about this quite a bit in the work I do, but I think at a minimum, we must not shame it. So, you know, I, I, as a faith, we have a very high standard of sexual behavior. And I think there's a lot of merit and value in that high standard that we connect it to commitment and fidelity, and that there is a direction and purpose to our sexual natures. Um, and I think that's extremely valuable. I think that though sometimes in our rigid standard and in our lofty standard, and then I think our fear that our kids or, you know, fellow church members may betray that standard, we can be really heavy handed towards normative sexual development and normal sexual desire. That's just a function of being human and alive and sentient and capable of good sexuality in marriage. And so I think we can hold to our ideals while still making room in a way that's um, going to facilitate spiritual development, mm -hmm. facilitate the ability to be happy in marriage. We can hold our high ideals without shaming the existence of sexuality and desire and sensuality that are God-given, necessary, and so linked to joy. So I, I, so I'm not sure that how direct that answer is, but I think that it is a part of normal sexual development, but we can still give it a direction and we cannot shame it because we create more compulsivity and we create more problems when we do. We work against our own objectives. The church spokesman said last week that, that masturbation is immoral, um, is the quote he used. How should it be viewed? And, and it does seem the church's own views on this subject have evolved. Yeah. I mean, I think masturbation certainly can be problematic if one is compulsive about it, if one is managing any behavior, be it pornography, masturbation, 
eating, <laughs> spending. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which people manage their anxieties and go towards kind of misery stabilizing behaviors that sort of allow them to get away from the things in life that they feel anxious about. And so, of course, there's ways to be in relationship to sexuality that's absolutely unhealthy and compulsive. And, and a lot of people see that. But I think that to just flatly call it immoral, I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, I've had clients who go to bishops and say that they haven't masturbated and then the bishop doesn't believe them. So that is we have an assumption that people are masturbating while we are still shaming it. And that sets people up to feel spiritual shame, sexual shame, and nothing good comes from that. And I see this because I work with married people so much that these troubles that we have a lot of marriages in which there is sexual repression or sexual indulgence because we haven't facilitated the way that we need to the integration of our sexuality to accept the gift that God has given us of our sexuality and to align it with our highest values. But that's more choice based and acceptance based, not fear and shame based because that derails that process. Um, so do you share um, Natasha's views on same-sex marriage? Well, I, I'm sympathetic to the church's challenge because I think we really value heterosexuality. We think of parents in heaven heterosexually. We value marriage very much. It's such a kind of foundational part of our theology. And I don't think that any church leader wants to reject a member who is attracted to their same gender. I don't, I mean, like, I know that church leaders want to include, but I think that we really do have a challenge on our hands because despite many mental health professionals' best efforts historically to, you know, change this, it doesn't seem to be possible. And therefore, we, since it's not choice-based, I don't believe it can be considered sinful. And so we, I have compassion for the development we have to sort out around this, but I can't in good faith say that one who's attracted to their same sex can't love someone, can't partner and choose someone. We all want someone special in our lives. And I think if we make it about sex, we miss the point that it's not about sex. It's about partnership. It's about choosing and being chosen, something that we all desire. And so it's not easy, but we owe it to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters to truly stretch ourselves on this front and make a home for them here. We need them and they need the church. Okay, so what about her views on pornography addiction? I think, I mean, my own perception is there's some differences of opinion in the mental health profession. Yes, there is, especially on this. Uh -huh. She has one view, but it's not necessarily everyone's view of it. Is that correct? Yes, and I don't know enough about Natasha's views to say, you know, whether or not she and I see things the same way. But I think what Natasha may be being misunderstood around is that to question pornography addiction as a kind of framing of of intervention is not the same thing as saying there's not such a thing as problematic sexual behaviors or compulsive pornography use. I don't know how Natasha sees that, but I personally 
think that there are some kind of um, paradigmatic challenges with some of the addiction treatments that are available to people, both because of how they make sex. uh, And first of all, I'm speaking monolithically, and I know that there's a lot of different approaches and they may all use the word addiction right in their approach. And some may be much healthier than others, but but I think that um, the if a program or, or an approach, first of all, some people look at pornography once in a while and others look at it compulsively. I've had clients four hours a day. They're going to lose their job. Right. So there's a massive range. And a lot of times people just lump that all into any behavior is all ultimately an addiction. And Elder Oaks has even spoken saying that that's not the right way to frame it or understand it. But in the frame of like compulsivity, it's usually more about self. What I think a lot of the programs or treatment models may do is they make sex the problem. And this fits a lot with some of our cultural fears that sex takes an otherwise good person and turns them into a corrupt person. You know, that sex is Satan's pathway and it's corrosive to one's spirituality. And the way that I tend to think of it is who one is spiritually and internally shows up in their sexuality. And so how developed you are is going to shape what you choose around sexuality and how you're in relationship to other people and to your spouse and to yourself. So compulsive sexual behavior, a lot of times we treat the the sexuality piece without treating what's going on inside of the person. And I'm much more interested in what is their behavior showing me about where they're stuck and who they are. The other trouble I have with it is a lot of times it puts the locus of control outside of the client. You know, like Satan's got the control here. Your sexuality runs you. And, you know, I think especially with um, like alcoholism, there's a a real meaningful sense in that, that, you know, this alcohol is stronger than me. Therefore, I'll stay away from it entirely. But with things that you can't sort of stay away from, like food compulsivity or sexual compulsivity, you you must see the person as the chooser and the actor and to help people discern and think through their choices, not that they have to stay as far away from sex as possible because you actually make people incapable of intimate partnerships in your effort to get rid of the problematic behavior. My goal or wish is to help people be more at peace with themselves, live more in line with their integrity and have better relationships. And so I'm doing it more from a a thoughtful choice-based model. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, quick question on, is there a difference between how the church maybe should message uh, things and and even mental health professionals, uh, adolescents versus adults, for instance, uh, you know, kids who are maturing versus, you know, uh, grownups. Um, it, it, I know a lot of adults who think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what, what do you think on that? Is it, it, well, certainly, first of all, from just a developmental perspective, there is a sense to the, for the strength of youth manual in terms of behavioral guidelines or behavioral kind of, what do you call it? Like guardrails that giving children and, and adolescents sort of too much latitude actually undermines their development. And so there's real value in kind of structuring choices and options that facilitate deeper self-referencing, deeper self-understanding. 
the problem is, is if we think anybody unmarried is still developmentally an adolescent, and I think we do this culturally to our single adults unfairly and, and unhelpfully, that, you know, it, it, it actually handicaps their development. And, you know, it, it's tricky for anyone who isn't married if they want to kind of keep developing sexually because there's only so far you can go if you're not in a sexual relationship. But I think that we can, I think we could frame things more from what is our goal around our sexuality? Who do we want to become? And how does that inform the decisions and choices that we make in our lives? Because again, people can do really hard things, but when they, when the locus of control is within themselves, they can do much harder things and not have it betray their integrity and their strength than when they keep the locus of control outside of themselves. I'm not supposed to, I must obey. You know, when you keep it outside, it actually handicaps your spiritual and relational and sexual maturation. And so we could easily within our theology emphasize these elements of integrity and agency and becoming more refined people. It's all there for us but we sometimes get stuck culturally at an adolescent level. So is there a consensus in the mental health community on these issues, you think? Well, that's a tough question. I, I can't imagine there's consensus. Um, I think especially, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of, I think differently than a lot of my colleagues about a lot of things, but I think that, um, you know, around pornography addiction in particular, there is a lot of variation on that. There's some people, LDS and non-LDS, who are very much in the in the sex addiction framing, um, and which offers some things. I'm not trying to just discredit it entirely, but I think it's a paradigm, and I think there's others who have a different paradigm in how they think about it in terms of what's most helpful. Um, so I think there's quite a bit of difference within the field around that. Um, and, you know, I'm imagining that, well, sexuality is a tough subject. And so I think, you know, if you go to an ASECT conference or something like that, there is going to be quite a bit of variation in terms of how people approach issues of sexuality dependent on their religious framing or their religious backgrounds. So I think it would be a stretch to say there's complete consensus, but thank goodness in some ways, because we need to keep growing and thinking about our positions uh, and our limitations in that. So is there consensus among LDS therapists? No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, no, I mean, I think, gosh, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, in any, in any element, you know, there's a lot of different models of therapy even, and they can really approach how you help someone evolve and grow very differently. And I I tend to embrace a model that's pretty different than most of my colleagues. Um, So, no, there's not consensus. There just isn't. But I think that, um, again, I think that's okay. (laughs) Because, you know, there's limitations in my view and limitations in others' view. So have you found local LDS officials who are sympathetic to therapists or to these views? 
Well, I, I've absolutely had bishops um, reach out to me who have, you know, gone through my courses or listened to my podcast and just said it's very helpful for them in how to hold our ideals while really helping people to f- think about sexuality and intimacy in a way that um, allows them to not live in so much fear and anxiety and to actually embrace kind of a higher ideal at the same time that they're um, able to accept their sexuality more deeply. So I've, I've certainly had that experience and, um, and, you know, my local leadership has been good to me. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally, before this episode with Natasha have felt, have observed the church seeming to be more and more open to therapists and, and actually wanting church members who are therapists to help address some of these issues. Yeah. So I I mean, that's why the, the, um, the disciplinary hearing came as a a bit of a shock, but Mm -hmm. for me uh, too, I mean, I may be wrong. I was saying the same thing to my husband a few weeks ago. It just feels like, there's more open embracing of it. At least I have, I think when I first started speaking that some people responded to me with more fear. And I think I, I I experienced it very differently now that people are not afraid to think about these things and consider these things. And I feel sort of more openly embraced by the community. And and your, um, all of your, your workshops and conferences are attended by very faithful Latter-day Saints. Yes, that's right. I mean, that just, that's right. And there's just so many good people who want their faith and sexuality. (laughs) They want to believe in God. They want to live up to their higher selves and they want some way to really relate to this part of themselves with less anxiety and, and fear. Isn't isn't one of the issues, and we've already talked this about this a little bit, is that local leaders are a little bit all over the map on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some some are will ask more probing questions. You know, the church, mm-hmm. even though to discourage some of that mm-hmm. officially, they'll ask more probing questions on sexuality issues than others, and so the standard seems a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way the church could better address that? Is that a problem? It seems like it would be a problem. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm imagining what it would probably be like is a little bit more do no harm, you know, <laughs> as in take down what you let be make allowable down um, so that, you know, well-intended bishops aren't in there probing around in areas that are not their expertise or their personal philosophy is getting kind of uh, flung onto the poor couple <laughs> that's sitting in front of them. And, you know, so it you know, we, the same standard with therapists do no harm. Like if you don't know, then say you don't know. And, um, and so kind of holding yourself to a minimal standard and thinking more in terms of spiritual guidance as opposed, I mean, there's a lot of overlap between these two, but spiritual guidance as opposed to mental health or sexual guidance. Mm-hmm. But it's tricky. I can imagine as a bishop feeling like, well, I don't know if the therapists were going to do any better with this because maybe they're going to have super, liberal ideas or undermine or discredit someone's faith. And I, I can see why a bishop could be anxious about that. And, and I, I think, it could, yeah. yeah, it could be tricky too. And that the bishop maybe, uh, or whoever the person interviewing might be or talking to maybe approached about these questions. It's not like they absolutely for it. They're just that's that's exactly it. right. 
That's right. exactly right. And I imagine that the, the, the church could do um, some training, but I, I think what the church is maybe also, and again, I'm speaking monolithically, but what I'm imagining too, is that, I mean, I think in some ways we are gravitating to elements of our theology that have been more dormant in the conversation that I think we have the ability to pull them more into our, our focus. I think we have the potential within the church to really, in some ways, be the light on the hill around sexuality. I think we have a theology that supports the integration of spirituality and sexuality. And um, so we have the potential to do that. Um, if we could get that worked out, we could do a better job of educating bishops and church leader, uh, church leaders and, and members of the church differently and better to kind of put the aim a little bit higher and further down the road rather than just a behavioristic approach to sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had you on Mormon land before where we talked about that, the whole mm-hmm. theology of sexuality mm-hmm. in Mormonism, which mm-hmm. is uh, much loftier than I think most people think. That's right. Um, or at least certainly outsiders think, and maybe even some members. That's right. Um, this may not be a fair question, but I'm going to ask anyone you can mm-hmm. answer if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ha- we still don't know at this point what the outcome of Natasha's hearing is. Mm-hmm. What would be the best outcome in your view? I would love to see the church show its strength and keep Natasha in. And because we're strong enough to tolerate dissent, we really are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as Joseph Smith said, you know, the truth is made by proving contraries. The truth is made manifest. That is, we need dissent. We need tension to drive our thinking, to drive our grappling with what's true. It doesn't mean that Natasha's right and the church is wrong. It means we need to think about what do we do about our LGBTQ uh, members and how do we love them better? And how do like Christ taught us over and over and over again, that love leads the way to truth. And so we have it there for us to love and open our hearts and allow our false traditions to be challenged and to grow as a community. We need it so badly. The members need it so badly. The church needs it so badly. I do feel for church leadership because we are in a society that is evolving at such a fast pace. It's very easy for people to get into their echo chambers of self-righteousness. And there is all kinds of things that are are a challenge for the church to navigate. And I feel for them. Um, But we do have a remarkable theology that we can grow with. And I don't think, I think if, if, if I think if Natasha is, is excommunicated, what I think it will do is prove to non-members that the church is a simple minded entity. It will entrench enemies more. It will drive some people that are sort of straddling out. It will drive more um, kind of orthodoxy and rigidity with some that are in because they're trying to align with what they perceive as good. And I think all of those things are negative. And I think the church can make a meaningful response to Natasha. They can say, we disagree with this for these reasons, right? Or we disagree with your tone for these reasons. And and that's helpful for people to think about what what is the issue, because it allows them to um, sort out for themselves 
what they believe is true and right and to pursue their own personal revelation. Right. But I don't think it protects us as much as we might think. Well, Jennifer Finlayson five. Thank you. Thank you. So appreciate you being with us today. Be well and stay safe. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.